Sir Arthur Conan Doyle said, It is a capital mistake to theorize before one has data. Insensibly, one begins to twist facts to suit theories instead of theories to suit facts. I'm Leah Levy, co-founder of Nanatome Media, and this is In Camera Podcast, where we only make data-driven decisions. Legal Marketing Conversations. Grace, welcome back. How are you today? I'm good. Busy, 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 just like you are. <laughs> yes, but it seems like you are being busier than I have, Grace. You were just telling me you were onboarding now a new client for, pers for Persist, which is uh, exciting, right? And I was telling you a little bit also about a recent onboarding that we had. And so a lot of things are happening, Grace. And I know, talking about being busy and things happening, that you were part of a webinar yesterday, uh, along with Persist, about the nuts and bolts of masters, right? And hopefully you are ready and willing to share with us the nuts and bolts of that presentation here. So uh, those of us who could not participate in this webinar can still get all of the valuable insights that you've been sharing with uh, the MasterArts community through MasterArts uh, Connect. It's definitely, it, it was a lot of fun, honestly. And I know that's kind of weird to say it was fun to hear about MasterArts, but it kind of was. I mean, you know, we're kind of missing out, I'd say, on MTMP, you know, and MasterArts Made Perfect in Vegas. I think we're all feeling a little left out, you know, with everything going on. And so this kind of, it was kind of nice. You know, we had all the people that you might normally have in the track, um, full day tracks condensed into like 10 minutes a piece, which was pretty amazing. I have to say that it, it was very impressive to, to hear all these different things about how to get into mass torts and everything you need to know about how to get into mass starts, but like starting it, right? And I think we forget, especially, I know I do sometimes, that other people have maybe don't know about mass torts at all, you know, yeah. how to get into it, right? It's been a recurring conversation for us here, right? Is we're yeah. trying to raise awareness, we're trying to have a very entry-level conversation here and try to touch on multiple points, right? So we've done conversations on the 10 masters to know in 2020, right? We've done some other uh, introductions to masters. And I think kind of like this is a great way to further dig into understanding the whole concept of masters based on what you've shared with me, Grace, and kind of like revisit some of the important elements about how to really create and enforce a digital marketing strategy that actually uh, generates leads, right? And so I'm very excited to hear what you have to share. I am very excited to hear what other people who presented as part of this webinar uh, had to share. 
And uh, Grace, I do agree with you. I think big shout out to Masters Made Perfect Connect because they really have created a wonderful program and agenda that, as you've said, really kind of delivers the Masters Made Perfect experience in the best possible way considering the circumstances. So exactly. fair to say that as of now, they're still planning on holding their event in October, the full session. And so for those who are interested, tickets are available and it's a great experience, I must say. Right, Grace? Yes. I I mean, personally, if, you, if you're if you involved in Mass Torts or even interested in Mass Torts, it's the place to go. You have to go to MTMP, Mass Torts Made Perfect in Vegas. It's the only place you're going to get the information you really need unless you go, you know, I mean, you can attend these mini webinars, but the experience of a full day and having all multiple sessions in multiple days, you can't get that but at, in person, really. And and the networking part of it as well. And it's just like such a such a nice, a nice atmosphere that builds around this whole event. And so that was kind of like a big bummer for us. We were really looking forward to it uh, in April. In April. <laughs> right, yeah, right in the midst of everything. But uh, we now have a full session to look forward to. And so let's see what... Uh, the future brings, but hopefully there will be a Master It's Made Perfect full session happening. All right, Grace, so let's jump right into it. What is it that you're going to get us started with? So I want to start with the very first session on the webinar, and that was how to identify a Master And, you know, they were kind enough to have Karen Lawrence Puccio of Garris Wright and McCall on the call and she started it off, I mean, pretty amazingly in giving you what is a mass tort. And I know that seems simplistic, uh, but to us, we understand that that's not even simplistic. It, it's just, some people just don't know, right? So- Yeah, I know, t totally. Like I've, I, I remember when we've just had our first conversation, I still needed for you to help me differentiate between a class action and a mass tort and really kind of understand very well what's the difference between the difference. those and when one fall under one category and not the other. So, you know, we've all been guilty of that. Well, I'd like to believe, otherwise I would feel very bad and lonely. No, most people don't <laughs> No, Most people don't know. I mean, I've been in this with Ed, you know, Edward Lake of Leaders of Mass Torts and Jacobino and Lake. I've been in this for about four years now, I want to say. And honestly, I used to work in import-export law. So personal injury law as a whole was not something I'd ever dealt with. And then getting into personal injury, but also mass tort law, which is a whole other animal, and then class actions, it, it definitely changed my perspective on certain types of legal marketing and how you do it and, and what it is and how to best serve your client or your customer, depending on what side of the fence you're on, right? Yeah. So let's start with what is a mass tort? I think she gave a very good um, definition. It's very simple um, and to the point. A mass tort is a single wrongful action that causes a similar injury to a large number of people. And we use the word similar because it's not the same one over and over to everybody, okay? And that could be considered, that would might be considered a class action. If it was not the, you know, if it was the same exact injury over and over, based on like the Takata airbags as an example or something like that. Um, GM and ignition recall, you know, that's the same defect or issue for everybody. So a mass tort is like what's happening with Zantac, what's happening with Talc, um, what's happening with, um, give me some more, Liel. Oh, <laughs> we just um, went over 10. <laughs> yeah, ab absolutely. We have Jewel, of course. We have also... Uh, dieting pills coming up, Roundup, of course. Did, did you mention that one? 
No, I didn't mention it because it's kind of yeah. petering off. Yeah, it's a kind bit. of on its last stages. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I, class action grace, just to confirm, right, based on what we've discussed the last time we've had this conversation, would be like a security breach. Equifax something security that happens breach. In an, right. Something that happens in one instant. A lot of people get compromised by it. And same that, issue. That would yeah. correct. Or um, an airplane crash or something like that, right? That would still that would be a class action, correct, Grace? Right, like the Amtrak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The okay. Amtrak derailing. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, she did go on to say what some questions that you might ask yourself. Essentially, um, this is more for the lawyer side, but it's still good to understand what makes up a mass tort and what kind of questions you might ask yourself, even if this is a mass tort or not. And those are, you know, very basic. What is the number of potential claims? Are there signature injuries or injury, you know, a is there a signature injury or signature injuries? Do the basic elements of the mass tort present issues that are common to everybody? And how many defendants are there? Have numerous cases presenting the same issues been filed in court? So I know I went over very quickly five different bullet points, but it's just basically asking yourself, is this a mass tort? Okay, well, number of potential claims, signature injury or injuries, elements common to everybody, and how many defendants and number of cases. So it's yep. really what it breaks down to, right? Absolutely, very relevant. So she does go over all the specifics, including the MDLs and what you should be looking at um, as to why the, an MDL might be formed for this mass tort. And that's a multi-district litigation. And it's a way for the judges, for the courts to basically put together these different cases into one place and for multi-districts, right? For multiple districts. And so that everybody can kind of be seen and heard together, um, and as cleanly as possible. It's, it's kind of imp not impossible, but well, really, I guess it is impossible to have, as an example, 16,000 Tau cases. Could you imagine trying to hear each and every single one of those? So that's right. why they, right? That's So that's why they put together the MDLs, which are multi-district litigations. Um, and I do have to say, guys, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> I play one on TV. <laughs> so moving on, um, I think that's pretty straightforward. I just want to make sure you guys understood what they were talking about on there. And that is, what is a mass tort? And kind of think about the different questions you might ask yourself to figure out what a mass tort is. So I think it's important, Liel, and you tell me if you, if you want to hear about this or if you think I should just go to the next section. What does the judicial panel on the MDL do? Okay, so for those of you that don't know what an MDL is or what it serves or what the purpose is of an MDL, again, as I said before, it's to combine everybody so that they can actually be heard. Um, the judicial panel, it's basically a, a group of people that are making judgments on that MDL, okay? And they decide as a group if those group of cases should be transferred for what they call coordinated pretrial proceedings or centralization, again, grouping everything together. They also select the judge that will preside over the consolidated cases. So your judicial, your judicial panel and who is on the judicial panel is actually quite important to know because that might, not might, it will determine how well your case will end up. Right, Leo? Correct, yeah. So the panel is basically made up of seven district or circuit court judges. They call them the blue ribbon panel. So these these 
ladies and gents are basically the creme de la creme of judges, okay? And these people have history of making fair judgments. Um, they have history of, of good uh, judgments that they've made and so on and so on. So that's why they call them what, I, what they, she even put in the slides quote-unquote, blue ribbon panel. So these people are very important people. They can make these decisions, and they're decided upon by the judicial panel who's going to be the specific um, person to preside, and then you never have two judges from the same circuit to make it fair. Does that make sense, Leo? It does, Grace. Sounds very fair. That's the idea, right? So they're trying to make it fair on both sides, um, you know, or as fair as they can. And they want to serve their client as best as they can. And that is by creating a group of people, not just the group of people that are the clients, but the group of judges that are going to be making these decisions. And they want to make sure it's as fair as possible. So in addition to that, their office is located in Washington, D.C., and they hold bi-monthly hearings around the country to consider motions to transfer. A motion to transfer is basically saying, hey, I don't think it should be in this district. The multi-district litigation should not be in pick a state, right? In Florida. I'm in Florida, so I'll use Florida. Yeah. I'll pick on Florida. In Florida, maybe we need to transfer it to Michigan. That's actually a bad example because Michigan does not like, we don't like Michigan for anything pharmaceutical. But let's say you transfer all of it to Michigan because it's a non-pharmaceutical MDL. That's where they make those decisions. So they hold those bi-monthly hearings to make those discussions and decide if they need to move it from one court to the next. So Grace, let me ask you something, right? Because I'm always kind of looking and focusing on the marketing side of things. So when, while all of this is happening, you already start running campaigns. Like at this point, we already are actively trying to generate leads or this would still be considered too soon. So this might be considered too soon, but if you are not risk averse, this may actually be a good time to get in, right? I mean, knowing, thinking as a marketer, right? That's why you asked that question. When we think as a marketer, we're like, hey, if we see the writing seems to be on the wall, seems to be, and you know enough about how these things work, you could make an educated guess that this could potentially become an, a mass tort might go to an MDL and or you say you have a specific, you know, knock it out of the park uh, case that you saw the injury was almost directly related or as closely related to the problem as you can see and you have the proof of that. I say go for it. You okay. know, it doesn't hurt to start yeah. small, you know, do it digitally because, you know, it might turn out to something. Um, maybe they can use their $1,000 Google ads to try and get a couple of... Uh... <laughs> oh, yeah, Grace, thanks for bringing that up because I do want to give a flash update to all of our listeners who listened to our last week episode. So I can report that one of our clients already got their ads credit deposited to their account, Grace. And yes. so here is what I can tell you about it. It was not a lot. It was just $250. Now, this particular account, they spent big, right? Let's put it put it on the category of more than $100,000 a month, right? And so if you think about it, for the 
amount of cash that they put in into the system and the amount of cash that they got as aid, if you may, we can certainly say that there is no shake shack injustice going on in here like there was with the PPP loans, right? If you if Google Ads thinks that you have enough money to sustain your campaigns, you're probably just going to get kind of like a little wink there, like here is a free click on us. But if you are potentially one of the businesses that got most impacted by uh, COVID. And quite honestly, we need to think now of restaurants and need to think of other kinds of industries that are not necessarily legal related. They may see the bigger deposits in their ad accounts. But I really don't know. This is the only one that we've seen so far come through. And so we'll see as we start seeing more ad credits rolled in, we'll be able to make a better judgment. But so far, big spender, did not get big credit. Okay, that's it. That's the end of the flash update. That's kind of cool though, to know that. Thanks for the update. I mean, I was wondering of about course. that kind of money thing. You know, we all, we all wonder about money, yeah. especially I think right I think, you know, as always, we've over planned for uh, great things. And then, you know, it's not really enough to run a campaign, maybe a display campaign for a few weeks on a small market, but Anyhow, you know, Grace, as we've said, every every little help. And I think it's a great gesture from Google and hopefully it will help and benefit many others. So let's get back into it. Okay, perfect. So again, as he mentioned, yes, it is, this potentially would be the time to get in. Now, there's, there's one thing that I keep kind of coming up against in terms of that. There's something called the Daubert standard, okay? Uh, the Daubert Principle. I believe that's what it's called in New York, and I think it has other names in different locations. I think it's um, it might be called Fry actually in New York and Daubert in other locations. But basically, it is the standard with which they decide if a mass tour is viable or not. It is based on scientific evidence, and what it does is it basically pulls together all the science involved, all the people on both sides, and says, did this potentially cause that example talc did talc potentially cause ovarian cancer is there enough science out there expert testimony etc 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 just like a real case to even move forward with the concept of a trial period or the concept yeah. of a tort does that make sense yeah it sounds like they're almost kind of like staging a, a trial to try to bring so they it up actually do to yeah. It's called bellwether trials. So if you understand statistical analysis, a bellwether, all it is is basically a graph. And mm -hmm. that graph is a graph of people. And to see what, how to, do most of the people fall inside of this graph of they took talc for this many years and this is what happened to them? Or do are a lot of people falling on what they call the outliers of this graph, right? Of this bell curve really is what it's called, not a graph. So at the ends of the bell curves are what they call outliers. Those are the people that, you know, okay, they may have gotten ovarian cancer, but they had other cancers or they had something else that potentially caused it. So they fall outside of the curve. If most of them fall inside of what they call the bell of the bellwether trial, then they can to statistically say that this happened because of potentially that. And then along with the expert testimony, science, memos, marketing, et cetera, et cetera, that's when they decide at that point if the Daubert standard will pass. Does it meet the Daubert standard? Does it meet the Fry standard? And if it does, that point, the day that you find out that that, that has passed, I say go for it. Like 
try to go for it. Again, this is still risk, guys. You know, this is like putting money in the stock market, except it's a little bit better because you have the potential for all the return and maybe not very much risk in the sense that if you've done your due diligence, you, you've looked at the science involved, you understand that this is a real potential case, as an attorney, you're making those decisions anyway, right? You are taking those risks by taking on certain types of clients that you know from history, okay, these are the types of clients I wanna take that I can help the best. It's the same with a mass tort. You have to look at the science, you have to look at the injuries, you need to make sure that the standards have passed. Is this something a pie in the sky or does it look like a real legit thing? Talc went nuts as soon as the Dow were passed. That's when Talc, or Johnson & Johnson decided to pull out. And they they will never claim or say anything with regards to it because they are not saying that it caused ovarian cancer. They are not saying or even alleging that that had anything to do with their talc or their talcum product. And they are only going to stop selling talcum in the United States and Canada. But they will continue selling outside of the U.S. and Canada because there still are sales outside of here. So the reason that they stopped selling it here, they're claiming it has to do with a decline in sales, not because of what happened. But what happened was the Daubert Standard passed on talc. So it went nuts. I hear you, Grace. And just to help us understand a little bit more so like a timeline here, how, how long does it take like from the very beginning that you've just talked about until you get to the results of the test? Is there a frame? It, it is, it differs from time to time. Yeah, it kind of does depending on the tort, right? So I'll give Zantac as an example. Zantac has been around as a drug for over 20 plus years, right? Um, until recently, did we think that the elevated lev levels of, I believe it's NMDA, I, for I keep forgetting the acronyms, but elevated levels of some chemical that's in it, that when it's heated, it causes, they're alleging that it potentially causes certain cancers in the body, right? Like prostate, um, I think testicular is one of them. I think stomach's another. Um, the problem with that, it's been out 20 years. So it might be difficult to prove, you know, but those were one of those things that it's been out 20 years and people will def definitely probably get into Zantac. And so to understand the tort, the timelines, it's different for every single one. Um, talc has been out, what, six years? Um, actually, on one of the people that that's on here, her entire, not career, but for the last six years, she said it right on the on the um, on the webinar. She was like, "My life has been talc for the last six years," and that's how I mean, and that's it, I think it might have been gone, going on even longer than that. So the timelines on here are vary by um, tort injury and the company that actually manufactures or created that product, or designed it, or whatever the de defect is in the, the product itself or device or whatever, right? Or mass tort or drug. So timelines are different. They, they, they vary. Um, it depends on how quickly you can actually make the link between the two. Um, if there's a lot of people. So you know what? It's, it's, I think maybe if you look at the FDA's website, there's a portal called Client Adverse Actions, okay? And this is something that if people have an issue with a product or something that's been approved by the FDA, like let's say a supplement causes harm to enough people, 
you as a consumer can go on the FDA website and report that you suffered or you believe you suffered an injury from something that's FDA approved, right? So you go on there and you, you report what's called a client adverse action. You tell them, this is what happened to me. And if there's enough of them, and that's actually how Juul, how the FDA found out that Juul was creating potential issues for people. It was because of the client adverse reporting that they were doing. So, you know, again, timeline varies. You don't know. I mean, you can make your best guess. And in the case when they do recalls, those happen before? They usually happen before or after these uh, tests and all of these, as you said, analysis is taking place? Is there is there kind of like a predictable way in which they go? Yes. So a recall... So this is the variables you need to think about. How big is the company that made that product? If they're a big, big company, they're going to fight you. They're going to fight you tooth and nail, so it's going to take forever, right? Johnson & Johnson. Yeah. They have uh, money. They have resources. They have resources, but it's not in their interest to necessarily settle because they have multiple consumer goods of every kind, and it doesn't yep. look good on them to settle, right? So yep. it just depends on the size of the company. It depends on how much money they actually have available before they go bankrupt trying to settle all these cases, right? Of so course. yeah, so there's a couple of variables that you can think about um, to help you make the best educated decision on whether you wanna go after that mass tort or not. Uh, but again, it's still risk. It's still essentially the stock market and it's still basically throwing your money out there and hoping you're going to get the return that you, you know, obviously six to one, 10 to one return if you can, two to one at minimum on every single case that you've purchased for this. But it could also turn the other way. Nothing happens and there there you spent, I don't know, 10,000, 100,000 or more on cases that never panned out. But would you say that going after recalls is kind of like a safer bet than when you are taking a route on on trying to build on something that is just at a stage of uh, being reported by several users of the product or consumers as it harming to them in some way or another without it actually being officially recalled. Will that, would you still see masters come up? Because for instance, Jewel did not get recalled, right? It just changed the labeling, correct. Adjusted their messaging in the included uh, new disclaimers in their packaging and such to raise the awareness that they were being told that they were avoiding. So there was no, no recall as such. They just stopped selling the product, but it doesn't sound like they officially said, you know what, we are removing toll from the market because we acknowledge that it's a leading cause to cancer, right? So what I'm trying to, to get into here is that there's not always a recall, is there? No. And as a matter of fact, okay. like with Esher, it was pre-market approved by the FDA. So some people didn't even want to go after Esher. They're like, yeah, but the FDA approved it. Why am I going to do something with that? They even put a black box warning, okay? Black box warning is the highest level of a warning that the FDA can possibly issue. They literally put a black label on it that says this will cause you this harm, you know, or potentially cause you this. So they did that with Esher, but because it was approved in advance by the FDA and then released – that one became a very weird and kind of touchy subject once it came out and people were doing, you know, trying to get sign up cases for Esher because what happened with Esher, it's a, it's an IUD essentially, not quite an IUD. It, it's a coil 
that's be is used as a contraceptive and it was breaking off um embedding migrating and also it had it was made out of nickel and there were no labels about nickel on the actual uh, box or device when it was getting inserted on, in the women and some women had sensitivities to nickel and so they got nickel poisoning i mean there's a whole bunch of things that happened with e-shirt they got yeah. taken off the shelves they got retracted if it was implanted in you okay we could we could leave it because if you remove it it could cause you you know might need a hysterectomy but they they it some of them panned out some of them didn't and we still don't know if that one's going to be you know even after the recall if anything's going to happen to it so there's just too many variables i think to not take each and every one on a case by case basis and decide from there on all the possible information you can get. Listen to people like this, you know, like us. Listen to people like leaders in mass torts, you know, listen to people like Edward Lake. Listen to people like, uh, you know, mass torts made perfect. Like these are the people that you need to be listening to to help guide your decision on what tort you should go after or not and whether you should go after it after a recall. Zantac was recalled. Everybody wanted to get into Zantac. But some didn't because they're like, well, it's been out for 20 years. This, 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 this. Some other variables that we talked about already. And they're like, no, I don't feel like Zantac's enough of a link between the cancer and the Zantac has been out too long. Who knows? Somebody took it 20 years, but he could have a history of this cancer. And then he gets the cancer and so on and so on. So everyone's case by case, Leah. I mean, that's the kind of what it boils down to, I guess. Yeah, yeah. it's definitely um, very interesting to hear, right? What's the thought process and how different uh, standpoints can defend different arguments. So it's, uh, yeah, it's very clear that it all comes down to being able to bring the right evidence and defend your beliefs, right? Your, your theory. It is. And that's exactly right. That's a very good word to use, Liel, theory, because they're also theorizing, right? And even at the Daubert standard that I was just talking about, they're theorizing. They're saying there's enough of evidence to link the two from the injury and the product or device or drug. But that's it. They're just saying that there's enough evidence to, to move forward with potential cases. But it doesn't mean anything, you know? And the same with the recall. It doesn't necessarily mean anything. But once that standard passes, as I said, it's still, that's kind of a really good indicator. Let's move on to, to this, okay? And if you decide as whatever that you believe that that's a really good tort and for whatever personal reasons you might have, then I say, you know, go for what you think. You know, if you're a good business dis decider, if you're good at making business decisions, then go ahead. It does not hurt to try and do that, you know, because you're an attorney. You're going to make money hopefully uh, on the end, you know, but in the interim, you're helping your clients, right? Obviously, you're not in it to just not make any money, but that's, you know, you are still helping people. And if you've made the decision and based on all the evidence you possibly can, and then your gut's still telling you, go ahead, this is a good decision, then do it. You know, I always tell people, look, at the end of the year, there's two things you can do with the profit you make. You can reinvest it or you can spend it and pay taxes, right? Why don't you reinvest it in a mass tort? If you have 100K, you have 50K, you have some money that you were going to end up paying taxes on or do something with, reinvest it in a mass tort so that you can look at it like if it's a stock, 
You look at it as if something that you can put on the shelf, well, not on the shelf necessarily, but you know what I mean, Leo. Put it uh, like on the shelf for two, three to five, six years, like in the case of talc, where it may not settle right now, but when it does, based on all the evidence that you learned up until that point, when it does, it's going to be good. So I like to say this all the time, and people kind of laugh at me when I say it, but is the juice worth the squeeze? That's where it kind of boils down to for me, and I always look at it. Is the juice worth the work that I got to put into it? And you decide from there for yourself. That's right. Well said. I like that. All right. <laughs> so what's next? So <laughs> <laughs> what's next is, um, so we had, this is the one I was telling you. I think she, she said that her life for the last six years has been talc, and that is um, Danielle Ward-Mason of Sanders Phillips Grossman. She's going very in-depth into how to vet the case and discovery, okay? So vetting a case obviously is super important. And this is kind of to your point, what we were just talking about. How do you look at a case and why? what makes one? You know, why should I go after this tort? She kind of goes mm -hmm. over that very, very well. And she'll say, she says, how do you, you know, in identifying a mass tort, you need to look at warnings, safety advisories that have been issued. Remember, we were talking about the FDA, adverse yeah. actions availability of medical literature because remember sometimes it's in the marketing right that they say that they this does this it's going to do this it's going to do that or they have off market uses in the literature so fda approved it for this use they're saying we'll prescribe it to you for this use because the literature says i can from the company okay that's what i mean by medical literature and off-market use. And then, of course, and this is probably one of the more, most important beside the other two, and that's number of consumers affected, right? Is it a lot of people that are affected by similar injuries from the same problem or product device? Now, the next step in their own mind, and this is part of the due diligence process, is establish the criteria. What do you think makes a good case? Are the injuries supported in the medical literature? In other words, is it saying there that this is this should not cause that? Okay, well, you have literature saying that this is not supposed to cause that. So um, I think, I'm trying to remember, but one of these blood thinner medications, the thing with the blood thinner medication that, that they, again, I, I won't name the name because I don't remember exactly which one it was, but that blood thinner medication, as compared to the other blood thinner that was on the market, the reason that they went after that one instead of the other one was because you could, in theory, bleed out and there were no coagulants to stop you from bleeding out. And the potential for that was apparently higher for certain types of people um, and it wasn't sufficient of warning that they had another option that wouldn't cause them to potentially bleed out. So those are the types of things that you need to look at you know, are the injuries supported in medical literature? Like with the blood thinner, it didn't say that. They had other options that, you know, that could save their life potentially. Risk factors affecting or certain kinds of outcomes, you know, like potentially incarceration, you know, that could bring into question the 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 person's character and certain things that you, you need to think about. The frequency and duration of use, super important. Uh, give you an example. Some people say that talc use, they want it 10 years. Some people want it no less than four years. Most of them I find have been between four and 10 years of use. And that's generally the standard for that one. 
and then the severity of the damages. So those are your, your essential four criterias that need to be established. You need to figure those out and make sure that they're in line with what's happening. It's in the medical literature. And you're an attorney, right? So you can call on other attorneys in this network that you know that are involved in this. They, generally speaking, are more than happy to speak with you, especially about a referral relationship. If these people are on the steering committees, if they're on the judicial panels, if you know their firms are on these panels and stuff, why wouldn't you speak with them? You know, or why wouldn't you get involved with someone who's in the network, like Jacobino and Lake, you know, or somebody that understands how to do the marketing, like Nanato Media. So these are things that, you know, when you're establishing criteria, when you're thinking about all these things, you still also have to think about how you're going to get these cases. So that's at the end of our conversation here, Liel. I just wanted to mention it now because I think it's super important that even going through all of this, yes, it's great, but you're also in the business of law. So you need to think about how you're going to obtain these cases and if that's really a viable tort for you. And I'll give you a really good example, as a matter of fact. Please. Firefighting foam. That's a new yeah, tort. Yeah, we talked about that one. Yeah. Yes. New, fairly emerging tort. If you're not in, the, I mean, there's firefighters everywhere, but let's say you were in a location where there just weren't that many firefighters or 3M, right? The earplugs. That's kind of gone by the wayside a little bit, by the way. Just a little very, very, very quick update um, because of 3M made it with the government. So there's some questions there we don't know yet they went from being potentially great cases to being we don't know what's going to happen but 3m let's say you're not nearby military bases you know what i mean yes we have digital nowadays yes there's an easy way to kind of put it out there and target certain people on social media i'm not saying there isn't but you need to think about those things so if you're an agricultural community roundup would have been easy for you right because you're in an agricultural community they recognize your name they recognize who you are and you know there's a lot of farmers, commercial farmers around. Commercial was probably the best type of case you could get because they had proof of use, right, criteria. medical. They had literature. It wasn't medical literature, but they had literature, um, risk factors, confounding outcomes, right? All of that played in, and it was perfect. And so if you're in a location where they recognize who you are and you have agricultural community around you, Roundup would have been a very good case to go after. If at the very least you could actually support the individual clients that are in your real community. So those are things that you should think about when you are thinking about the tort, in addition to the actual criteria that's involved, think about the marketing and how you're gonna do it. And that's towards the end here. That's what Ed talked about on the webinar yesterday, by the way. So what are the options, Grace? Let's give ourselves a, a quick reminder as to what routes you can take for marketing for mass torts. I remember very well, Again, on the early conversations that we've had on mass storage, there's different ways that you can get involved, right? Yes. There is the completely hands-off approach where you invest and you don't necessarily have to take care of the marketing. You don't necessarily have to partake in the handling of cases or anything across those lines. But as we've talked over the uh, past few episodes that we've dedicated to mass storage, we've also uncovered that there's um, different kind of partnerships that you can establish where you can actually partake in the responsibilities of handling the case, right? And therefore get yourself a better fees, a better fee. Correct. So that's definitely like the marketing side of things would be more applicable for those who venture into a partnership where they're actually involved in the lead generation 
part of it and also up to a certain extent they're also handling part of the case is am i correct grace a hundred percent i couldn't have put it better leo that's exactly okay. right. okay great so you know we've had uh several guests in our podcast uh some of them they've been in the lead generation world right where they uh generate for you retainers they take care basically of the entire marketing the intake process yes they they can either pay for the leads to come in directly or they can pay for contracts okay and Correct. so there's contracts a, right which is the retainer agreement with the authorization documents along with an intake as a packet right the questionnaire whatever that needs to go through the criteria so yes but those are right two different ways right do you want to take in the leads directly and do you want to process mm. them or are you taking in contracts that you're reviewing which you still have to know obviously the criteria that you should be accepting and everything that you're just reviewing and either accepting or rejecting based on the criteria being met by the intake center lead co company etc etc okay so that's kind of like off-hands approach where you can still generate leads but outsource that uh task to a partner they take care of it and then you still get to handle the case and obviously you also incur the costs of having to pay for those services to generate those contracts right exactly and so you need to know very well your numbers to see what is really the value that you can get out of that now there is obviously grace the approach of generating your own leads as you very well mentioned there and then you have to have your own infrastructure to make sure that you are helping navigate the lead all the way to conversion which one of the things that we've talked about almost every time that uh, masters comes up is that it can be sometimes a more extensive journey right master leads not always convert after just one phone call that's for uh, sure. Some, sometimes they take uh, several touch points, right? And there needs to be also a follow-up to that. So it helps a lot having a good process in place, whether you are going for pay-per-click strategy or an SEO strategy or other mass media kind of strategy. You still need to have a process where you understand very well how do you take someone from being a warm lead, if you may, right? Someone who raised their hand and said, hey, you know what? This could be something that uh, may be applicable to me all the way down to our retention, right? Right. And so uh, we have a good episode where we kind of like go more in depth on that, Grace, thanks to you, right? Um, and I would definitely encourage those who are more interested in kind of like the lead generation, lead conversion side of thing, to definitely uh, go and revisit that episode. Now, Grace, there's here a slide, right? Which is very interesting to me, mm -hmm. right? Which is the metrics to live by, yes. right? And I think this is so important, not just for the masters uh, side of things, but just to understand very well how to make good and smart marketing decisions, right? There's a few components here, Grace, and I would love, right, just kind of like to wrap this up. If you can help uh, us describe each one of them. So for those who are not yet familiar in using them, can actually get familiarized and hopefully start using them or start asking questions so that they can come up with these numbers and therefore get a better control of their overall marketing efforts. So Grace, I'll just go and list them all, mm -hmm. and then we can go one by one quickly, 
right? Perfect. Total conversion rate, campaign level conversions, cost per conversion, leads to close ratio, and cost per acquisition, right? So let's go on the total conversion rate, Grace. Okay, let's talk about each and every one of these. So this section was, of course, by the illustrious Edward Lake Esquire, you know, my boss man, um, who's founder of Jacobino and Lake, founding, one of the founding partners. He's also founder of Leaders in Mass Torts, which was the uh, company that I'm also COO of, where we sponsored the MTP Connect webinar yesterday. And during the, the call, he his portion had to do specifically with lead generation, what is it and how does it work? In the metrics to live by, which to me was one of the most important slides, I agree with you, Liel, total conversion rate has to do with all the things that you're doing to get that lead and then convert it into a case. That is your total conversion rate, okay? Now, Liel and I have talked about this a few times. I don't know if anybody's actually heard us, but I cannot reiterate this enough. When it comes to conversion, you need to define the conversion. Okay, a conversion is not defined by your lead vendor. <laughs> that is so important. They can help you decide what conversion is and what conversion should be, but don't let them define what your conversion is supposed to be from, right? You know what your conversion is supposed to be. You need to know what it goes from lead all the way to an actual retainer and a case that's signed up that is viable, right? That is what your total conversion needs to be looking at. Am I wrong? I agree with you with what you say, Grace, that you need to kind of understand what are your uh, conversions, what are you going to actually count as a conversion, right? Because there may be different campaigns that you're running where potentially downloading a guide can be counting as a conversion without necessarily having the lead send out a web form or initiate a phone call as such, right? It's kind of like more of an indirect conversion, but still one, right? Because they're identifying themselves to you. Now, I think it's uh, very important to understand that, but also in relation to how many of these converted leads are actually, as you've said, turning into actual signed clients, right? And I think that kind of like is how these following terms give more precision to your overall regard of leads and conversions and such, right? Mm -hmm. Because you want to know what are your conversion rates in general. So mm -hmm. if you're running multiple campaigns, you want to understand out of 100 clicks that I'm getting, how many of those are actually completing a call to action, right? And as we've said, the call to action can be a download, the call to action may be a phone call or a web form. And you want to be able to identify very well amongst all of your campaigns, which campaign is performing at a better rate by generating more conversions, right? right. But that's not, to, that's not to be the only metric that you're looking at because you may have other campaigns that are converting at a lower rate but you're getting actually more signed clients from them, right? And so which one's going to be more valuable? The one that is generating you more conversions, but less signed cases, or the one that is generating you less conversions, but higher quality leads that are actually being converting. So that's why these metrics can be a little bit deceiving and you need to know them all, right? Yes. Now your cost per conversion is also going to be super important, particularly for instance, if, like just to give you a very quick example here, if you're going to be doing display campaigns or search network campaigns, your cost per conversion is going to be 
completely unproportionate, right? You're going to be paying cents on display. You're going to be paying at times hundreds of dollars for the conversion on a search network campaign. So um, you definitely need to understand how much is that different conversions are, are costing you and the value that you're getting out from them. That's extremely, extremely uh, valuable information to know. But here, these, the last two are my favorite ones, right? Because these are numbers that not a lot of people know about and not a lot of people are considering because um, most of the times when you're working with an agency that does not follow through on the leads that are being generated for campaigns into actual signing stage, this information is no longer available to them to be able to convert it into metrics, right? So leads to close ratio, right? So how many leads, how many conversions, how many conversions does it take to get to one signed client, right? And that that's massive because you're not, it's, a fact that you're not going to sign every single converted lead, even if you're dealing only with conversions that are uh, that count as phone calls, right? Not every single person that is going to call you is going to turn out into a signed client because they may not have all the requirements to get signed. They may back down and they decide they don't want to pursue a lawsuit or whatever it is that they are contacting you about. And so that's something that you always need to account for. Now, you definitely want to know, okay, so for every three or four leads that I generate, I do get one signed case, then that's your leads to close ratio, right? right. You can now understand that from 100 conversions that you're generating, 25 of them are going to turn into signed clients. And that number is very, very, very important, particularly when you're doing uh, cost per click campaigns, because it will allow you to understand the next point, which is your cost per acquisition, mm -hmm. right? Because now you need to take all of this and translate kind of like... Um, reverse engineer them into numbers, right? So understand, okay, how many clicks does it take me to generate a conversion? Let's just, for the sake of giving an example here, says five, right? So it takes you five clicks. For every five clicks that you're generating, you're getting one conversion, right? So that gives you a conversion rate of 20%, which as a matter of fact, is not terrible for the legal industry. Uh, legal industry average is 7%, believe it or not, it's extremely low, but, but that's because there's a lot of people that don't know what they're doing and they're just bringing down the entire metrics, but a good agency should not be performing on anything below 30%. But anyhow, that's beyond the point. We just said for an example, 20%, right? So from every uh, five clicks, you get one conversion. Now, as we've said, not every single conversion is going to turn into a signed client. So it may be the case that for every four conversions, people that actually converted, you ended up landing a client. So Grace, this is going to be a quick math test on you. How many clicks is that? Right? I'll repeat. It takes five leads to generate one conversion. And then from every four conversions, one of get gets signed. So how many clicks have we've had to go through in order? <laughs> how many clicks we've had to go through in order to get to that conversion? Now you're going to make me write this okay, down. One in five, you said? Actually, 20. Okay. 20. Yeah, because it was five okay. and four. Correct. Yeah. Five and four. So that's 20. Okay? okay, great. So now you need to know how much 20 clicks, right, are costing you and then you will know what your cost per acquisition is. Yes. And if that and if that number is good in terms of against your the ROI that you want, like if you can cover up that number and still get a profit, then your campaign is profitable. 
if 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 your number there does not uh it's too high and you're spending too much to get an acquisition and you cannot bring the cost per acquisition down because here is the thing right your cost per acquisition is not set in stone you should be able to optimize your campaigns in order to try to get a better cost per acquisition and you do that by you know trying to get good on your cost per clicks increase your conversion rate there are several things that you can do there to really manage that but at the end of the day the only way that you're going to be able to understand whether you're running a profitable campaign or not is if you know what is your cost per acquisition and that's always 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 what we say here grace is the beauty of digital marketing is that it makes it very easy for you to be able to bring it home with this kind of data and numbers. Everything's recorded for you. Now try to do this kind of attribution on TV. Very hard, very, yeah. very hard. It is, right? it is. It is great. So uh, I must say, you know, I, I, I really geek out on these things. I, I was love just about to, to say, I love here. hearing you talk about it, honestly, like <laughs> I do. I'm like, this is the part that I, I like to listen to you because I know you, you're literally, this is what, this is what you do. So. You know, giving the you you give a lot of value, Ad Liel, and I mean not just because you and I work together, you know, in terms of our network, but you honestly do, and I like that you geek out on this stuff because it's hard for people to understand what they should be asking, and then not only what should they be asking, but what does it even mean? What am I asking? I don't know. What am I asking? What is a conversion? What is this? What is that? I think you give a very very good explanation of every single one of these, and that the bottom line is you if you don't know your numbers. Your business is not going to be profitable. Yeah. <laughs> and and I guess, I mean, all of this comes down also to the fact that you also need to know what's the lifetime value of a client, right? Like, if LTV. you don't know, exactly. If you don't know how much money you're generating for each kind of, of client, then your, you know, your cost per acquisition is not going to be able to compare against anything. Right. And therefore, you may not be able to use it for much, yeah. right? To your point, so... I know social security disability, when a couple of these rules and regulations changed, a lot of people didn't weren't there to understand that they needed to pivot into potentially another practice area because they weren't paying attention to the cost per acquisition, all the numbers that are involved in what they're doing, including per act, per practice area, just like you just said. So, you know, if you if you have a, a finger on the pulse of your numbers, you should not be surprised, right? You should not have to guess and you shouldn't have to I mean there's no guesswork in this it's it's numbers that are in your face right especially with digital like you said and I mean that's right Grace you couldn't have explained it any better I really I, I like that leads to close ratio in yeah. all that exactly <laughs> all right Grace so let's do some takeaways here right because I think we've went through a lot of information I mean you certainly dive deep into the whole nuts and bolts of masters. I mean, it's very, very interesting. It's a lot of information. And of course, you know, for lawyers, it must be also very, um, it's something you, if you're going to actually litigate masters, I guess you need to be very, very passionate about it. Right. I like, I, I'm like just hearing the story of someone who spent six years, right. Uh, behind something, uh, like the talk mastered you certainly have to have a big passion for what you do for uh for your the clients. entire process of it yeah mm -hmm. for your clients absolutely and for, for for the process because at the end of the day it's 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 as you've said right it's almost like a, a scientific process that you need to pro to go through in order to really be able to come down to a, a resolution 
that will make you uh, want to move uh, one direction or the other. So that was very interesting, Grace. So let's uh, let's let's take one takeaway from there, and then one takeaway from marketing, and we're wrapping up. Let's do it. All right. Raise raise awareness. Right. Be alert. Pay attention to recalls, like you said. Yes. Scientific yeah. literature, FDA client adverse actions. Um, you know, the FDA is your friend. Like, go to their website and sign up for the client adverse actions and recall notices. I'm signed up for all of it. So I get to know almost immediately. Actually, I did. I knew as soon as they recalled it on the FDA website, I posted it right on the website. I knew the same day it happened. So be be aware, inform yourself, understand it, learn it. Um, you know, you're an attorney. You have the capability of really kind of digging deep into this on a potentially different level than other people because you can reach out to other lawyers and talk to them about it, um, especially in this network. Um, you know, know, know your information. If you're going to go after it, I think that's number one. Yeah, absolutely, Grace. And I'm going to go with number two, know your numbers, right? <laughs> know your numbers. And before you get into anything that has to do with marketing, know your uh, internal numbers, know the value of your different types of cases and understand very well what is the value that each different kind of client can bring to your law firm, your costs internally. So then you can actually understand and estimate how much is that you can invest in marketing. And the time that you actually come up with that, with that number and you are ready to go to a campaign, you have way more chances to succeed at it because that's another great thing about particularly digital marketing is that you you decide how much you want to invest, right? You don't need uh, the market to decide it for you, right? You may have to put up with certain limitations if your budget is not as competitive as the one of other law firms in your market, but you can certainly, knowing how much is it that you can afford to invest, you can certainly keep your budget profitable for you. Right. And so I guess that's the value of understanding numbers for any kind of uh, legal marketing that you're doing. Grace, I love this conversation. Thank you so much for filling us with so much data and uh, insights on Masters. And I'm looking forward for another conversation with you next week. Same. And thank you so much for the numbers information. That was awesome. <laughs> thank you, Grace. All right. Have a great afternoon. You too. Bye. If you like our show, make sure you subscribe. Tell your co-workers, leave us a review, and send us your questions at ask at incamerapodcast.com. We'll see you next week. Bye.